Okay, today is July the 10th, 2012, and we'll prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, the option of rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness and the opportunity to be here to feed on your word. We realize that you are omniscient, you know all things, and you have revealed to us those things that you would have us know. And if we don't know them, then we're in a fog. We're confused, and we just uh, are just fumbling, bumbling around in this life. So we pray that you will help us to concentrate so that we can stand firm for the faith. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We are in the getting the gospel right, and currently we are focusing on the tenets of Reformed theology or Calvinism, which is an acrostic called TULIP. We've looked at total depravity. The main thing that you need to remember about total depravity is that it is distorted by the Reformed theology uh, group by saying that total depravity means total inability. And that's not true. It's true to a degree. We can't please God. We can't do anything on our own initiative or our own works. There's nothing that commends us to God. However, that does not mean that we are unable to receive the free gift of eternal life that's given through accepting the gospel. And that's what we're focusing on. This is uh, rampant today, this Reformed theology, and I think it's important for you to be able to stand your ground. I've already given you the points, uh, this point, uh, total depravity out of the five points of Calvinism, which was written by Frank Beck. And <clears throat> now we're looking at the rebuttal to that in the book, What Love Is This? by Dave Hunt. And I'll just jump right in. We're not through with the, uh, total depravity with regards to Dave's rebuttal to it. He says on page 110, if there is anything the Bible shows, it is that God does hold men responsible for their actions. God's thou shalt is spoken to free persons, not puppets. And so this is something that, uh, that is a major factor, that God has given us volition and he holds us responsible as to how we use our volition. He uses it to hold us responsible as believers that we are to grow in grace and knowledge, and if we don't do that, then we're responsible to him for uh, wasting our time here on earth. He even holds unbelievers responsible. He will discipline nations. Uh, he will hold them responsible. He holds families, mainly the Father for uh, families that are out of source, but he holds nations as well. So we are given free will and... God holds us responsible as to how we use it. On page 112, he says, he's, he's making the point that God does hold people responsible and that he is just in damning those who reject the free gift of salvation. He starts out by saying, Denying that God has the right to damn us 
is, however, uh, not true. That his justice requires him to damn the non-elect any more than he does the elect. Now, do y'all, are y'all familiar when I'm saying non-elect and elect? We're talking about believers and unbelievers. And he's saying he has a right uh, to damn the non-elect just the same as he would uh, the elect. He, he's, he has that prerogative. However, he says, Many scriptures clearly declare that God sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Now, this might be a, few, a place where you might want to jot down a few verses because if God only, I mean, if Christ only died for the elect, it certainly wouldn't cover the whole world. The world is cosmos in the Greek, and it has about six meanings. But the meaning that we think of most predominantly is in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, and he's talking about there the population of the world. So John 4.42 1 John 4.4 speak of Christ um, being the Savior of the world. Romans 3.25 and 26, that God might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. That's the only only thing anyone has to do is to believe in Jesus to be justified by God. Paul expresses how God can justly forgive sinners in Romans 3:21 through 30. But nowhere does the scriptures explain how God could justly condemn for sinning those he predestinated to uh, sin and to eternal destruction. In other words, he's, God is just in forgiving sinners because he paid the price, Christ's death on the cross. But it never anywhere in the Bible does it say he would be justified for condemning those that he has predestined to sin and to eternal destruction. You see what I'm saying? Uh, the whole difference is, and it would be when we get to the uh, L in TULIP, which is limited atonement, that's what that's speaking of. Because Christ paid for the sins of the whole world. I hope you are recognizing that this first letter, T, for total depravity, sets up the erroneous perception of everything because if man is unable to accept the gospel, to accept a free gift, then God has to do it for him if if anyone is going to be saved. And so then you get into where we'll get next is into unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace. It all falls, it all starts with this T of of being enabled to accept the gospel. Here's, a, here's a, uh, a good question. He says, my spirit, uh, this is what uh, God said in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3. He said, my spirit shall not always strive with man. Then here's the question. How can there be a real striving if man is dead in his sin and therefore cannot hear, much less be persuaded? He says, I will... That's in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3. It says, I shall not always strive with men. Well, why strive with men? If they're predestined to go to hell, they are unable to even accept the free gift of salvation. If God has to infuse or somehow give them irresistible grace, they're regenerated and don't even know it. They're given the faith. All these things come from the erroneous idea that man is unable to accept the gospel. That's where it all starts. That's where it starts getting off track. 
Indeed, the Calvinist God strives with no one for the salvation or doom of all is a matter not of their response to the gospel, but of his having predestined them to one or the other. Do you understand that? God doesn't have to strive with anyone because in eternity past, he cho- according to the Calvinists, he chose who's going to be the elect, who is going to be saved. In eternity past, he chose a certain number of people who he's going to save, and the rest are condemned to, consigned to the lake of fire. Now, if that's the case, and that's what they claim, then why would God strive with anyone? He doesn't have to strive with the elect because they're going to get the get to be regenerated. They're going to get irresistible grace. God is going to give them what what they are unable to come up with themselves, according to their theology. And to the ones who are condemned and consigned to hell, to the lake of fire, they can't accept it anyway. So why would there be any striving? Do you understand? And yet the Bible talks about striving, God striving with them. Genesis chapter 6 verse 3 was just one. If Calvinism is true, then we have God wasting his time and effort in insincere pleadings with those who, can, can, who not only cannot respond without his help, but whom he doesn't really want to save anyway. How can it be said that he wants to save those whom he has already condemned and doomed? It doesn't make sense, does it? Then he says on one page, page 115, he says, On the contrary, not showing mercy at all, because he's making the point over here. Well, I, 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 I skipped something. I won't, let me go back one page here. He's talking about a clear contrast. He's talking about uh, the pleading. He said, It confronts us with the mystery of a God of infinite mercy and love who nevertheless doesn't love everyone and therefore lets multitudes perish whom he could save. In fact, Calvin himself declared that it is to God's glory that he fills hell with those whom he could save. That's a quote from Calvin. On the contrary, not showing mercy at all could be explained as resulting from justice. God isn't, doesn't have to save anyone. But not allowing mercy to all when all are equal, equally guilty is a perversion of justice. The Bible repeatedly presents a God who so loved the world that he sent his Son that the world through him might be saved. And here you have that in John 3.16, 1 John 4.14. In 1 Timothy 2.4 it says that he would have all men to be saved. Now if you're talking to a Calvinist, they always have an answer for everything. But it's not the right answer. When it says that God would have all men to be saved, they're saying that that means all types of men. That would mean whether it wouldn't matter what race you are, what social status you have, uh, whether you're male or female, he would, have, he would have all types of men saved, but not all without exception saved. The Bible repeatedly presents Christ as the one who gave himself a ransom 
for all. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6. Who is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. And whose death provided a propitiation for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 2, 2. Go to 1 John 2, 2 and, and circle this one. This is the one that I, I think one of the verses... Uh, one of the many verses that puts a wooden stake through the heart of Calvinism. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. It's a short verse. It's easy to, to memorize. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. And he is the propitiation of our sins but not only our sins, but for the sins of the entire world. Now, the way the Calvinists would read that doesn't even make sense. They would have to read that verse like this. He is, he is the propitiation. You know what propitiation means? The satisfaction. Christ's atonement on the cross propitiated God, satisfied God's sense of justice. So it says he is the satisfaction of our sins, that being the elect. He's the propitiation for the elect sins, but not only for the sins of the elect, but for the sins of the whole world of elect. That's a little redundant, isn't it? doesn't even make sense. So, does, of course, all of these are, are very very uh, pertinent to limited atonement as well. The fact that totally depraved men can obviously make moral choices for good would, would surely imply that without being regenerated, they could under the Holy Spirit conviction make a genuine choice to repent and turn to God. Where does the, God's Word say they cannot? Can even one verse be found in Scripture that clearly declares that man must be regenerated before he can believe the gospel? And there is not one verse in the entire Bible that says that you have to be regenerated by God first before you can have the faith. Not one. The faith always comes first in the Bible. Um, Many of the verses Calvinists used to support the T in tulip is John 1.13 and Romans 9.16, and they have nothing to do with the concept of total depravity. And such passages are, in those we are simply told that by our own, we cannot force ourselves upon God. And Romans chapter 9 says that, he will, that God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And, the, and people say, well, let's just go to Romans 9 for a moment. This is one of the, probably in the whole Bible, this chapter is used, it, let me put it this way, it's their go-to chapter in the Bible, Romans chapter 9. And I'm just going to briefly go through this, a uh, few of these scriptures. 
Romans chapter 9. Okay, if you look at verse, let's see, I can't, okay, here it is. Start with verse um, 9, Romans chapter 9, verse 9. For this is a word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not, the, uh, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, The older shall serve the younger. In verse 13, just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I've hated. Now what this sounds like when this was presented to me, and I didn't know any better at the time, it sounded like this is, supports the Calvinistic view that God decides who he wants to love, who he decides to save, and who he doesn't. Because it says that before they were even born, before they've done anything good or evil, God has already chosen one. He says, I love Jacob and I hated Esau. And it sounds like it's an individual thing. However, um, when you go to uh, Genesis chapter 25, verse 23, it explains that there are two nations within her womb. And it's the nations that this is describing, not the individuals. And from Jacob, Jacob was the lion of, of, of Christ because he was a believer. And because he was a believer, um, he was the... the uh, salvation, and that and he was the chosen one. He, he was, even though Ishmael was a, um, the first son of Abraham, the, he, he wasn't the one that got the blessing. It was Jacob because Jacob was a believer. And all this is showing is the difference between uh, the nation that came from the line of Ishmael, which we trace down to being Arabs now today, which are predominantly Muslim, and those from Jacob who are, of course, uh, God's chosen people. So it's not even talking about uh, individuals here. It's talking about nations. Yes. Verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. You know, well, uh what that's essentially saying is that um, it would be like not everyone in a in a church is a believer. All of Country Bible Church, all of any given church, especially the bigger churches, I guess you could say, are not believers. Uh, they're not they're not uh, functioning in the uh, pattern and and in the in the way that God had designed them to be, even though they were still Israelites. Think of all the Israelites who were trying to, keep, trying to be saved by keeping the law, and yet they were still Israelites, but they weren't the, they weren't the elect Israelites. That's what that's referring to there. Uh, let's see. Look at verse 
14. What shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And this sounds like, oh, you know, this is talking about God's sovereignty. But what it's essentially saying is you cannot command God to have mercy on you. You cannot command God to have compassion on you. He does it from his own will. It's not because anyone can coerce God to save them or to give him blessings or anything else. Uh, they always take it out of, out of uh, character. I probably shouldn't have gone there because I can get too far off of where we were. But we did go to John, we were John chapter 9, verse 16. Is, uh, again, what Dave said is that John 1.13 and Romans 9.16 have nothing to do with the concept of total depravity. Is in passage. In these passages, we are simply told that by our own will, we cannot force ourselves upon God. You got that? You can't force God to have mercy on you. He is the author of salvation and, is, and it is all by His mercy and grace, not by our effort or will. None of us, none such passage, however, declares that any man cannot believe the gospel when it is offered to him with the convicting and convincing power of the Holy Spirit. So just because, um, just because you cannot force God to have mercy or compassion on you doesn't mean that you are un unable to accept the gospel. That's essentially what he's saying there. Let me get on to something here. Uh, there's uh, one thing that the um, Calvinists proclaim is that you can't, you that your your will is in bondage to sin, and that um, a, a sinner can't break the bondage of sin. Now I'm going to ask you a question. You need to think about it. Is that true? Is it possible for a sinner to break the bondage of sin? Now, I have to clarify that for you to be able to answer it. I'm talking about an unbeliever at this point. Can a, can a, can a sinner who is an unbeliever break the bondage of sin? No, he cannot. Because he's spiritually dead. He has an old sin nature. He has nothing. He has no equipment, no tools, no anything to be able to break the bondage of sin. And that can't be disputed. But it is a quantum leap beyond that fact to declare that the prisoner of sin cannot with great joy receive deliverance uh, Christ freely gives. See, it's a free gift. That's why you're able to accept it. That one cannot change the color of his skin does not mean that one cannot gladly receive the cleansing of sin through Christ's blood. In other words, they say, well, just like a leopard can't change his spots, you can't... You can't um, break the bondage of sin. And, of course, uh, there is a way that, a that an unbeliever can break the bondage of sin, but it's not him doing it. When he believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the things that happens is that death grip that the, ho that the old sin nature has on his life is broken. You know, that's why we are able to produce divine good. That's why we are able to please God. It's the Holy Spirit working through us, but that means that the unbeliever is no longer under the bondage of sin, but of course he's a believer. 
He goes on to say, I agree with the Calvinists that man is enslaved by sin and would not of his own initiative seek after God, but incapability of being convicted of his sin and judgment to come or believe in the good news of the gospel. Does Scripture teach this? There's not a single verse in Scripture which clearly states that proposition. It's just not there. Calvinists are to be commended for their zeal to protect God's sovereignty and glory. They are concerned that if man could do anything towards his salvation, that fact would rob God of some of the credit for saving him. Confusion arises, though, failing to recognize the obvious distinction between man's inability to do anything for salvation, which is biblical, and an alleged inability to believe the gospel, which is not biblical. To believe the gospel and to receive Christ requires how much work? None. How much, how, how much worth is credited to man on his part for believing the gospel? None. All credit goes to the object of our faith. Man contributes nothing to his salvation, gives no credit to man, and it gives no credit to man and distracts in no way from God's glory by man being able to um, accept the gospel. It is simply not true that believing in and receiving Christ gives any credit to man or distracts at all from the fact that it is Christ alone who procured our redemption. Faith is not a work, nor does it give any credit to the person who believes. That's the main thing. Faith is non-meritorious. There is no credit in faith. Furthermore, what of the faith which the elect receive after they are allegedly regenerated? If that does not detract from God's glory, why should faith that leads to regeneration attract glory? Or, I mean, uh, detract. One cannot escape the countless times in the Bible when both unsaved for their salvation and saved for their walk with Christ are commanded to believe in God, in His promises, in Christ, and in His Word. Man has no relationship with God apart from faith. If faith then, exercised by man, distracts from God's glory, it would be impossible for him to have any relationship with God without lessening God's glory. And obviously that's not true. You see, the whole thing is, focuses around whether faith is meritorious or not, and it is not. It's just a simple, simply it's a, a system of perception. We use it every day. Now, he's talking about freedom of choice. He says, how can there be any real freedom of choice if only one kind of choice is available and one which has been decreed eternally? That's not even a choice. See, the Calvinists don't believe you. Well, they, they, they won't say that you don't have a will. They'll say you don't have a free will. Your will is in bondage to sin, according to them, hopelessly, and it means that you are unable even to accept the gospel. Here's the point. I think it's a great point. No one can justly be held accountable for failing to do what is impossible for him to do. It's if it's impossible for man to do anything that's pleasing to God and having faith in Christ is meritorious, and we know that it's, it's no credit going to God, if he's unable to accept the free gift of salvation, how can he be condemned for not accepting it when it's impossible for him to do so. 
Isn't that, I mean, that's easy to understand. Can a, can a just God hold someone accountable for failing to do what is impossible for them to do? Obviously, the eternal counsel of God's will must have allowed man the freedom to defy his will or sin would be or our sin would be God's will. I want yeah, I know I'm I'm probably going over this fast. I don't want you to fall asleep on me here. Listen to this. The eternal counsel of God's will must have allowed man the freedom to defy his will or sin would be God's will. In other words, man has to have free will. If man doesn't have free will and he sins, whose will was it? It was God's. God would be the author of sin is what I'm saying if man doesn't have free will. Okay, uh, bear with me just a minute here. Just about done with uh, total depravity. By its very nature... A gift must be received by an act of the will. If forced upon the recipient, it's not a gift, is it? If I if I came and said, look, um, let's say that you hate um, rutabagas. And I don't even know, I don't know if I've ever tasted it, but it doesn't sound. Uh, or let's say I have tasted Brussels sprouts. Let's say you hate. Brussels sprouts. And I had abundance of Brussels sprouts in my garden. And you came to church and I had a whole bushel of Brussels sprouts. And I said, here, I'm going to give these to you as a gift. You don't have to pay me anything. Here, take them. You say, no, no, thank you. I don't want them. Yes, you take them. I don't want them. I pull out a gun and put it on you. You're going to take those. I'm going to blow your brains out. And you take them then it wasn't really a gift, was it? It's something forced on you. The only way that you can receive a gift is that you desire it, is that you want it, that you want to receive it. No one can force it on you. If it's forced on you, then it's not a gift. I should have saved that one for irresistible grace, shouldn't I? (laughs) Nor is God any less sovereign because He cannot force anyone to love Him or to receive the gift of eternal life through Christ. You see, they say if, if man is able to reject the gospel, then God isn't sovereign. If man rejects the gift, then it somehow lessens God's sovereignty. See, here's the thing. Salvation isn't about authority. Salvation stems from God's uh, love, first of all. It comes from God's love and, of course, His righteousness and justice Cause Christ to go to the cross, but you're not saved when you when you when someone rejects the gospel. It's not lessening God's authority or His sovereignty, and you know why? Because it was God that gave that person the choice to begin with. You got that? It would be self-contradictory that Almighty God should create a free agent capable of loving him without also being capable of rejecting his love. Without free will, we could not freely love God. Freedom is a condition of love. Can you make someone love you? 
You see, God had the ability to do that. He could make every one of us love Him. He could make every person or just some person, people with regards to His sovereignty. He could pre-program them to accept the gospel and to love Him. But the only problem, I said He could, actually that would be impossible, I believe, because He would then be negating His justice and His righteousness and His love. He has Everything he has to do has to fall in line with that. In his sovereignty, God has so continued, uh, excuse me, has so constituted the nature of a gift and of love that man must have the power of choice or he cannot experience one from God's gracious hand. It is impossible that the power of choice could be challenge, a challenge of God's sovereignty since it is the sovereignty of of God, which bestowed the gift on man to begin with. That's what I was just saying. Now, I think this is, let's see, is this the last part of, uh, let's see. It's just about, listen to this. This is a paragraph. This is a short paragraph. It was written by Zane Hodges and quoted by Dave Hunt in this book, What Love Is This? Listen to this. This makes so much sense. I have a star with starburst coming off of that, and it's very rare when I put those by a note. So when I have that, it brings my attention to it. This is it. If there is one thing five-point Calvinists hold with vigorous tenacity, it is the belief that there can be no human free will at all. With surprising logic, they usually argue that God cannot be sovereign if man is granted a degree of free will. But this view of God actually diminishes the greatness of his sovereign power. For if God cannot control a universe in which there is genuine free will and is reduced to creating robots, then such a God is truly of limited power indeed. You got that? In other words, the Calvinists essentially believe, they won't say this, and it makes them angry for you to say it, but essentially they're saying that everyone that is going to accept the gospel have been pre-programmed. That's just like you do a robot. They're pre-programmed to do what they're going to do. And what he's, what he's saying is, in, then they, they have to, God had to do that because they are unable to accept the gospel. So he has to do that. He has to pre-program or, or they're destined for hell. And what he's saying, if God, when God gave free will to mankind, that was the greatest act of his sovereignty ever. Because if anybody can pre-program, pre just think of a school teacher. If she, had the, she was omnipotent like God and she could pre-program her students to learn everything, all of them to make straight A's, to have perfect manners, and to love her, then you know, she would think, man, this is great. There's only one problem in that. Is that is no way would bring any glory to her if she could do that. She could, you know, if the only way that God can control the universe is by not giving free will, that limits his sovereignty and his, his power. But when God created man and, and, and the angels with free will and they could go for him or against him, they could do anything, make any choices they wanted, and him still control the universe, now you're talking about sovereignty. I know a lot of you parents would like to pre-program your children. It would make... It would make Life a lot easier, but the only thing, you would never want to do that because then they could not truly love you. 
that has to come from someone's own nature. By its very nature, a gift must be received by an act of free will. Yeah, I gave you that already. Um, let's see. All right. Let's take a breather. I'll take a breather. Um, are you all about ready for a change like unlimited atonement? I remember la asking you last time about... Uh, Unlimited atonement. Do you know what it is? And most of you uh, wasn't wasn't sure. So we're going to see if we can remedy that. First of all, what I'm going to do is give you the Calvinist view of the you. Here it is here, an unconditional election. This is this guy is a good writer. This is back to the Five Points of Calvinism by France, Frank Frank B. Beck. He said, it has been well said that in the doctrine of election, a theologian takes his final examination. He says, man is totally depraved and therefore deprived of any good towards God. And do we agree with that? Yes. Then he says, however, if the doctrine of total inability, see he's already changed from total depravity and now he's calling it total inability. If the doctrine of total inability be admitted, the doctrine of unconditional election follows by most inescapable logic. And that's true. If you, can't, if you cannot, if you're unable to accept the gospel, then it, it just stands to reason that God has to make that choice and not you to accept it or reject it. He also says... The scriptures and experience tell us all men by nature is in a state of guilt and depravity from which they are wholly unable to deliver themselves and have no claim whatsoever on God for deliverance. We've already established that's true, don't we? A apart from accepting the gospel. Then he says it follows that if any are saved, God must choose out of those who shall be the object of his grace. And that is not true. Well, it's true to this degree. God chooses those who are going to be saved based on his foreknowledge of them accepting the gospel. And that is what this book is denying. It's denying it big time. He says with, the, uh, with regards to unconditional election, he says what we mean by this is that God in eternity chose or picked out mankind whom he would save by means of Christ's death and work of the Holy Spirit. Is that true? Yes, that's true. But then, if he would have just stopped there, he said that he did it for no other reason than his own wise, just, and gracious purpose. And that's not true. He didn't do it just for his own wise and just and gracious purpose from the from the perspective that they're coming from, I can't see that it's wise and I can't see that it's gracious from what they mean by that is God chose some based on his inscrutable will and not others. By the way, they, they go to verses like John fifteen sixteen about God does the choosing. It says, 
John 15:16 says, "You have not chosen me, but I," says the Savior, "have chosen you." In other words, they're saying that you can't choose God. You can't accept the gospel because when you accept the gospel, you're choosing God. The only problem is they've taken that out of context because that verse is Christ talking to his disciples. He's not talking about people accepting the gospels. He's telling his disciples that. And then he says, Neither do we mean that God elected all men without exception to salvation. He's saying that they're not saying, they, do, uh, they don't mean that God elected all men without exception to salvation. And the truth is that he only, he elects only uh, the elect. In other words, when it says, neither do we mean that God elected all men without exception to salvation. That's not what unconditional election means. In fact, they mean just the opposite of that. Now, we're getting to some things here that I can't believe that he said some of these things. <sighs> He's explaining. He says, he, God, calls when he purposed to save. And whom he calls, he foreknows. And whom he foreknew, he predestinated. Now, I want you to go to, um, let's see, what scripture is it? Uh, Romans chapter 8. Because he's getting this all out of, out, all what he's saying here, if you go to Romans chapter 8, you'll see that he's got it all bass backwards here. And I told you it's okay to say that because I found it in a, in a book of, terms so i don't think anybody here would get bent by that but somebody on the internet might okay Rome, go to romans chapter 8 and we always think about verse 28 we all know that one but we're going to go to verse 29 now listen to this listen to the order of this for whom he, this is referring to God, foreknew. Now, put a circle around that. It all starts with God's foreknowledge, which is a subset of his omniscience. God's omniscience knows everything that would ever happen and even all the possibilities as well. His foreknowledge is just limited to what's going to happen in the, in the divine decrees. But the fact that he foreknew it in no means, no manner means that they were going, that he coerced the things to happen. He just knows that they're going to happen ahead of time. You understand that point? Okay. So verse 29 says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. What came first, the foreknowledge or the predestined? The foreknowledge came first. To become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many uh, brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. And it all started with what? Foreknowledge. You see, I keep saying over and over that where the Calvinists get off, especially with regards to the gospel, is they base everything on God's sovereignty. And it's not, 
when you're talking about salvation, you're not talking about God's sovereignty. You're talking about, especially with regards to foreknowledge, you're talking about his omniscience. It's the only reason that God uses the term in the Bible, predestined, elect, called, all these things, is to demonstrate he knew this ahead of time. It's not highlighting his sovereignty. It never does. It highlights his omniscience and his foreknowledge, and this is what it's saying here. And he's saying just the opposite. You'll see what I'm talking about when I move on here. He says, if God elected all men without exception to be saved, all would have the experience of the effectual call and be justified and glorified. But the only problem is that what they're mixing up is that died, uh, Christ died for all mankind and those who accept the gospel are the elect. God, Christ didn't die for... See, he's saying if God elected all men without exception. Well, nobody even claims that God elected all men. There's a difference between God electing all men, which is not true, and Christ dying for all men. You see? He's not even... And he can't say that Christ died for all men because the next letter is L, and that's limited atonement. He says, We do not merely mean that God elected to save all who would believe in His Son. But that's what we believe. You hear what? He said, unconditional election does not mean that God elected to save all who would believe in His Son. Then he goes on to say, uh, this is a notion that God elected a plan and not persons. Does that make sense to you? In other words, he says, the foreknowledge couldn't be... Uh, and his plan to elect to save all who would believe in his son can't be so because that would be God electing a plan but not persons. He says, we don't, we don't mean that God elects men because of his foresight or prescience. You know what prescience is? It's, the word is prescience. Pre means before and science means knowledge. It means his foreknowledge. He doesn't want to use foreknowledge there. Though. So he says... Um, we don't mean that God elects men because of his foresight or prescience of their repentance, faith, or good works on their part. That's what he's saying. The foreknowledge isn't talking about that. If it's not talking about that, what is it talking about? He says, Who did, who he, excuse me, whom he did foreknow, he also predestinated. That's what we looked at in Romans 8 29. And they are elect according to the, what? This is, by the way, 1 Peter 1, 2 says that they are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. You understand what I'm saying here? We're talking about why God did what He did. He did it because of the foreknowledge. He knew ahead of time that you were going to elect, I mean, that you were going to believe. You have free will. He says... Uh, that does not mean a foreknowledge about people, which is, the, which is this view, amount, what this view amounts to, but a foreknowledge of people Christ will say to be uh, the wicked. He says in John uh, 8.29, he says, excuse me, Romans 8.29 does not make the faith of the elect. Well, nobody ever says it does. I mean, he, this is a straw man here. He's thinking that if you have free will, if you exercise faith, 
that the, the, the foreknowledge somehow makes the, the faith, but it doesn't. It just knows about the faith. So he says Romans 8.29 doesn't make the faith of the elect, but the elect themselves objects of the of the foreknowledge of God. It, I, I, don't know, doesn't, I, I can't even follow it. And if I can't follow it, I don't think you can either. It doesn't make sense. We're just about done, but I wanted to get to this part. This is the... This is just gets ghastly. In salvation, it extends only to those who believe in Christ. And is that true? Does salvation extend only to those who believe in Christ? Yes, we believe that. Then he says, but believing doesn't cause election. It only manifests that one is elect. <laughs> he says... We all agree that salvation extends only to those who believe in Christ. But then he says, but believing doesn't cause election. It only manifests that one is elect. This is the way that one would put it if you don't have free will. Um, and it, it, believing, he's right, believing doesn't cause election. Believing receives the free gift. It doesn't cause anything. God has already done it. The, the way this comes from a perverted thinking that is, is just dark. And then he says, Why does not God elect all without exception to salvation? Why should he? He owes nothing, owes us nothing. The marvel of marvels is not that God in his infinite love and justice has not elected all of this, uh, uh, has not elected all of this guilty race to be saved, but rather that he has elected any. In other words, it's not a marvel that He's elected all, which he hasn't, but that he's elected any. See, he's, he's mixing unlimited atonement and election, and they're not the same. He's getting the two mixed up. He doesn't believe in, in unlimited atonement anyway. All right, here's something that we would agree with. Where there is election of some, there is by logic rejection of others. That's true, isn't it? Of course. By choosing some of Adam's race to salvation... God does not choose others. Well, that's, that's true. But see, he's still saying in a sense of choosing, and his choosing is based on what? His foreknowledge. Foreknowledge of those who were going to accept the gospel. He said election is not the cause of anybody going to hell, for election is unto salvation. And that's true. No one, God didn't elect anyone to go to hell. People go to hell because they want to. They reject the truth of God. God and then he, oh this is this is sweet here. He says God is not a respecter of persons. Do we believe that? Yes, we do. But then he says to have respect of persons is to make a difference between the equality excuse me, between the equally deserving, but it involves no respect of persons to make a difference between the the holy ill deserving. In other words, he's saying that it's okay and it's right to have no respecter of persons if they're all equally deserving. But he says it, it, that's not true when, the, when they are those who, who, who are wholly ill-deserving. So he's saying that essentially that God is a respecter of persons only for those who are deserving, but those who are not deserving... He doesn't have to be a respecter. I mean, he, he, he can be a respecter of persons. 
And God, you know what it means, respect your persons? It's talking about partiality. And then this is, this is one of the things that got me. That, well, I'll end on this one. I, I, can't, I can't go past this anyway. He says, yet there is a deeper mystery about God. If, listen to this. If God does not will the existence and therefore the deserved punishment of the reprobate or the non-elect, why does he permit it? Isn't that a good question? Let me read that again to you. If God does not will the existence, and in parentheses, and therefore the deserved punishment of the reprobate or the non-elect, why does he permit it? He doesn't will it. In other words, he does not will. They're saying he does not will all those that he consigned and withholds salvation from. He does not will them to be reprobate. So why does he permit it? You got that? Then listen what he says. He says God, God could convert to good the will of the wicked because he is omnipotent. He could do it. He acknowledges that. It is evident that he could. If it, it, it is evident he could. So why then does he not? In other words, he could save the non-elect if he wanted to. And he doesn't will them to be that way. So why does he not save them too? I'm paraphrasing what he says. And here's the answer. You're going to love this. He, 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 it says, then why does he not? And it says, because he would not. And why, why he would not remains within himself. In other words, it's a mystery. It's uh, the five points of Calvinism by Frank B. Beck. And I'm not trying to run him down at all. I, I, but I'm just saying this gives insights to, these, to people who think this way, a darkness that you, you don't know to what extent this is. And any time you... you you know, when someone first comes and starts tell, talking to you about the doctrines of sovereign grace, they call them, these Calvinistic uh, acrostic tulip and so forth, the first thing that any normal person would say, well, wait a minute. If God is a God of love and compassion and mercy, how can he do this? How can he send all these people to hell when he could save them? If he saves some, he can save the rest of them. Why couldn't he do that? And they always go, that was his answer right there. Well, that part's a mystery. It's... It, it's inscrutable. Well, <laughs> I'll draw a line in the sand here. Mike, yes. This, this might be directed to Christians. It's something I, I don't understand. I cannot relate. Foreknowledge to chapter 9, Romans 9, 21, 21 and 22. 9, 21 and 22. Or does the to make from the same lump one vessel for honor and another for uh, common use. Okay, what if God, although willing, demonstrates his wrath to make uh, his power known, endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared uh, for destruction? Now, what this is doing, when the colonel taught this, and I, when, I first, when I first went to Baraka, he was covering this, chapter 9. And I was a Calvinist. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I think it was a little more than luck. 
I mean, uh, here I am, a cow. And the only reason I went there was to prove to my wife, now Carrie, that this idea of free will and uh, is, is a bunch of hooey, and I was going to prove him wrong. And he just whittled me down to nothing. Uh, what this is talking about, the lump is talking about volition. That helps. He's the one that gave volition, and out of that volition, uh, he has a, a, a right to farm out of that, or from that, he says, uh, from the same lump. Or do, uh, Let me start with verse 21 again. That's what you said. Or does not the potter, the potter being God, have the right over the clay uh, to make from the same lump, that would be volition, one vessel of honor and another uh, other for common use? And then what? what is... What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath, which would be his justice, and to make his power known, endured much with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Okay, this means uh, prepared for destruction means equipped with volition. And the, verse 22, uh, Pharaoh comes to mind. Uh, God endured with... Uh, much long-suffering and patience, a vessel of wrath to demonstrate uh, his, his power. Okay? Uh, yeah, 23. And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, uh, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Uh, if you go into this whole chapter 9 with a mindset that you have no volition, that you're totally depraved, you're totally unable. Uh, God did not elect you because of his foreknowledge, but because of his sovereignty. It was arbitrary. You say, oh, no, it wasn't arbitrary. Okay, well, what is it then? Why did he not elect all? Or why didn't he give, uh, when Christ died on the cross, God very easily, in fact, he did make it pertinent for all mankind, available to all mankind. But they say he didn't. And when you ask him, what, why not? Well, that's just a mystery. Uh, we can't think, we, we, we're not to question God. That's what I was told when I, I've, I've debated many Calvinists on these things. And when I, when I asked them, well, how can this be so? They said, you're not to question God. I said, but aren't I to find out who, what he's like, who he is? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? And, and I found out that he's just and he's righteous and he's full of love and mercy and grace. And it doesn't comply doesn't comport with any of these things. Um, I'm not questioning what God can do. I'm just questioning who you say he is. Not what the Bible says he is. Uh, I'm out of time. Let me get that afterwards. I'm, I'm sorry. I, uh, we're already past time. I didn't mean to go over. But I, I will take any questions if you want to get them afterwards quickly. Okay, let's close. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that it straightens us out that indeed we do have a God of love and mercy and compassion and that we do have uh, free will and God holds us responsible for how we use it. And so we pray that you will help those that have been blinded by these uh, heresies, that maybe even you might use us in order to show them the grace, the love, the mercy, compassion, all of our great God. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.